everybody got so quiet. Welcome back. I hope you took at least four laps around the building and walked off lunch. It's pretty good, huh? Thank you, kitchen people. That was Afro Terry, which is a downtown Greek place. And we have one more session, but we have first to bring us back into worship, a special number from the McNeely. So, you guys, take us away. everybody. Good, good, good. Now, as your father probably told you, my name is Matt Foley, 
And I am a motivational speaker. Now let's get started by letting me give you a little bit of a scenario of what my life is all about. First off, I am 35 years old. I am divorced. And I live in a van down by the river. Now, you kids are probably saying to yourselves, hey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get the world by the tail and wrap it around and pull it down and put it in my pocket. Well, I'm here to tell you that you're probably going to find out as you go out there that you're not going to amount to jack squats. All right, you can stop it there. I love how the actress, Christina Applegate, can't even stay in character. She's like hiding. She's laughing so hard. It's so amazing. Chris Farley, amazing comedian. So I, uh, I had him play that just to illustrate the idea. I see, yeah, I see Caleb doing the Chris Farley thing in the back. Um, just to illustrate the idea that, uh, that we are here because we believe that, spiritually speaking, we have not amounted to jack squat one degree or another, we're aware of the fact that we're really messed up. We're sinners, right? As Marty said, it's been said all weekend. Uh, and we had this natural perspective, and it's been fed by people in the church, that Christian life is about becoming somebody, and we're going to get the world by the tail and stick it in our pocket for Jesus, right? And, uh, and now that's what Kanye is doing. So, yeah. <laughs> He might actually pull it off with his platform, but uh, no, we we uh, we're understanding and we're we're relishing this truth that it's not about what we do for Christ; it's about what He's done for us. And and so my my text for this devotional, real quick, is is Hebrews twelve fourteen, which says, "Pursue peace with all men and the." Right or the holiness or the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And that's one of those passages, or really that verse is usually taken out of context. And it's one of the main verses I've seen to teach this idea of, of progressive sanctification, sort of collaborative sanctification. And yet when you look at the context of Hebrews, the unmistakable theme and, and thrust of that book is that it's the finished work of Christ that makes us holy, that we're set apart because of Jesus' blood. And what the author is doing is he's encouraging, really urging his readers not to, not to go backwards, not to return to the external rituals and traditions of Judaism, but to, in a very real sense, lean into the person and work of Jesus. That is their holiness. They are set apart because of him. It's not some kind of conditional. There's a little bit of a conditional reality to the old covenant where God said, you'll be a holy nation if you keep my covenant. Well, in Christ, it has all been kept, and we are holy. And that's why when you look up that word throughout the New Testament, it is almost always absolute slam dunk, definitive, objective, God has done its sanctification. But we've created this category, and I think it's our kind of our flesh's way of smuggling, smuggling works or works of the law back into the equation. So we've, we've created this category of sanctification 
and and we've separated it from all the other great, rich terms that describe what it means to be in Christ, our justification and adoption and reconciliation and redemption and all these words that just describe the beautiful array of gifts and benefits we have in Christ. We've separated sanctification and we've said, well, all of those are God-given by grace alone and had nothing to do with you. And one big theological word is used is, is monergism. God is the one who made it possible. But when it comes to sanctification, well, that one's different. For some reason, that one's different. And now that one's up to you and what you do. And, and, and any of us who have spoken this weekend would tell you that we believe that's a, a tragic misunderstanding of the term. And in reality, sanctification is established just as much as justification and redemption and reconciliation and adoption because of what Christ has done for you. And that's the, that's the message of Hebrews. And so the writer is saying, and they're persecuted people at that time, this, this ragtag bunch of misfits, and he's saying, hey, look, there's going to be a temptation to return to the, the false sense of security you had in your religious establishment, the trappings of it. When, when you're under pressure and things are feeling insecure, it's going to be easy to, to go back or to be tempted to go back. And he's just saying, don't go back. You have the fullness. You have the best gift there is. You have Jesus. And he is your holiness. And so lean into that. And, and the objection, this is the last thing I'll say, the objection that often comes as well I mean, how, 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 why is he saying strive or pursue what you already have? It doesn't make any sense. And, and my response to that is, well, he said earlier in Hebrews, and I believe it's related to the same idea. He said earlier in Hebrews, be diligent to enter his rest, which is his way of saying work hard to not work hard. The writer of Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament contains within it many we would call paradoxes, right? And Marty talked about the, the symbol, right? The idea that both are true. You're, you're both sinner and saint. And, and so in the same respect, I would say that passage in he, Hebrews, and, and if you want, I could send you a bit of bunch written on this in much more detail, but that passage in Hebrews is, is urging you to keep your focus on Christ. It's just remember him. He, he is your holiness. You are set apart in him. You are saints because of everything he's done. Um, and if you're honest with yourself, like Matt Foley, you realize when it comes to what matters most, you're not going to amount to Jack Squad. <laughs> but he loves you, he has you, and your eternity is secure because of him. I hope that's encouraging to you. Thanks, Jeff. Can y'all hear me? Turned on? Okay. Let's see if I can figure out this fancy technology to... Oh, it's already on it. Okay. All right, great. Uh, before we get started, everybody pray with me. Because um, I don't want to say a single word without asking the Lord to, to help. Father, we thank you deeply for bringing us together for this conference in the name of Jesus to explore and learn and to encourage each other in the grace that you've given us through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for this little talk. I pray that you will 
grant me utterance and clarity and wisdom to speak forth the mystery of the gospel and that for some people in here that need it, that the light bulbs will be able to come on and uh, that they'll see, we'll, we'll all see this in a new light. Um, Father, I thank you that you choose the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world. And so I'm happy to stand up here in that in that frame. So we pray that it is your truth that is spoken here and that it is your truth that will shine forth and it is your love for us that will come clean here uh, this afternoon. We thank you for these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. You know, I kind of wanted to say uh, just briefly that I'm so excited about this gathering and I'm so excited about what what this is because, uh, I mean, a little tiny bit of history. I remember driving around with Betty and I had started where we were going. I had started giving teachings about all this kind of, you know, radical grace stuff. Uh, where we were going to church, and some people hated it, and some people loved it. And we, I was getting questions from some people like, well, I hear what you're saying, and it sounds very exciting, but what does it mean for me, you know, in my everyday normal life? Like, what do you, how do, what is it, what is it, what are the practical consequences? And so I remember driving with Betty, and we're like, we need some kind of conference, and we could call it, like, practical grace or grace in practice so that's a book and she came up with the idea of calling it real life grace and we had things printed up and it never really went anywhere and then jeff pierce called and was like i really like that name you remember that jeff uh real life grace and do you mind if i use that and we're going to make a website for it i i had sort of given up on the idea and um so he started that, and all of this started happening, and then uh, uh, Ryan started the uh, Ragamuffin Gospel Group, and then we changed the name to Real Life Grace, and now we're having this. What it proves to me is that God is way more in control of things than, than I am or, or that any of us are, and so this it's just beautiful that we're having this and doing this. You know, it's really amazing, so I'm... I'm super grateful for it. It's it's a, a little bit of a dream come true, right? So very awesome. Okay, uh, so I have a secret confession to make. I waste a lot of time watching YouTube videos of NFL highlights. So I'm going to start, and we're going to get to watch an NFL highlight flick. Of uh, the one, of the probably the most amazing running back that ever walked the earth, uh, Barry Sanders. So here we go. Watch this. Are you kidding me? I mean, are you kidding me? That is incredible, isn't it? How many guys had, they had him. Three guys had him. 
And uh, he still slipped out of there and made a touchdown. Unbelievable. I feel like that radical grace theology is like that. It's Barry Sanders. Because every time somebody tries to attack, like, well, what about this verse? It's like, you know, it's strange. But if you look at the context, every single time it's saying radical grace. It's not saying something else. It's saying what you just can't believe. It seems too good to be true. But when you, when you end up looking at the context, it's like Barry Sanders. It's like there's three guys. Oh, they got him. They're trying to attack him. It's like, I got it. And it doesn't work. Nothing can grasp onto it, and nothing can be Grace and the gospel will win the touchdown every single time. So, I don't know. I was just struck by that watching Barry Sanders. Like, Barry Sanders is the gospel. <laughs> All right. I don't know if that works for you, but it works for me. Okay. Um, I do, you know, I, I expect and I hope that there are people here today that have certain reservations and doubts about all of this crazy stuff that we're teaching here. Um, And I want to assure you that what I'm about to say and what we're all saying is the same mindset as 1 Timothy 1.5. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We're not trying, none of us are trying to pull the wool over our eyes and say, so we just want you to go out and sin more. You know, I think all of us are saying, shall we sin all the more that grace might increase? The problem is, if you come at it from a normal legalistic perspective, it has no power whatsoever to lead you to this goal of uh, love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Because it doesn't actually have the grounds to have a sincere faith. All right? But I just want, you know, I want you to keep in the back of the mind, I share this concern. I think it's important that we remember that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Especially, you can't have love from a pure heart if you don't have a sincere faith. So we're, we're looking at that. We're looking at having a sincere faith, which is why we're raising these issues. Like, let's look at James 2. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6. Let's look at third use of the law. Let's look at, you know, we need to look at these things, and we need to make sure that we're standing on the firm ground of the actual truth of God and that we're looking at the scriptures the way that they're intended to be looked at. That this is really the, the, the Holy Spirit's guidance and that we're, we are walking in the actual truth of God here. So skepticism is welcome. It, it's meaningful. It's needful. Um, all right. So moving on. Um, we are going to look at this passage. So I'm going to put it up here and read it. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Okay, so that's the text that we're dealing with. That's what we're going to be looking at, and I'm going to be looking at the, the, the surrounding text and the general text of 1 Corinthians. But before we do that, I want to step back to all the way to Genesis 3 and lay a little bit of groundwork for how we're, how we're, look, how we're thinking about this. <clears throat> so here's the verse, in, uh, 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 if you want to look at it in your own Bible in case you don't trust the slide. It's Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and then it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Okay, so I want to notice something that's, it's probably not the usual take on this, but if you look at this text, there is an exact point in time when, you know what, I have a, laser pointer and I just want to point that out when when the woman saw okay here on this side so we're, yeah there we go when when the woman saw so before the woman saw she had not realized or noticed that the tree was good for food or was desirable to make one wise. What does this mean? This means that before this point in time, everything that was permissible was also a delight and delicious. There was no distinction. But everything that was not permissible was considered to be disgusting and undesirable and not to be even looked at. So at the point when she saw this, that is the point in time when her idea of good got split into the idea of moral good and aesthetic good. Because there, she realized the moral good was, do not eat this. But there was a separate idea that she had now seen, that there was a desirability to the thing that was forbidden. You with me? So before that, everything, before this win, she had not seen that it was the tree was good for food or a delight to the eyes. It was not delightful. It was not delicious. It was not desirable. So before this point in time, there was a natural, unforced holiness. Because everything that she wanted and everything that he wanted was also the thing that was permissible. And they didn't want anything that was unholy. That was what it was like to be before the fall. We have no conception of this anymore. Everything that we are presented with has this dual decision to it. 
that it is, is it aesthetically good? Yes or no. Or is it morally good? Yes or no. And never the twain shall meet. Right? So this is a really important thing because that really is exactly and directly what the fall was all about. It was this cataclysmic split in the human psyche between the moral good and the aesthetic good. So now, we are, I think that is the point in time when we directly came under the law. The law became active at that point when we began to need to analyze every possible decision and say, is this thing that I want moral? Or is this thing that I want not? But here's another observation about this passage. We are wired to always have the aesthetic thing win. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, she didn't go, oh, but I shouldn't. She said, it looks good for food, and I want it, and I'm going to eat it, and she did eat it. The thing as humans that will always win for us is the thing that our heart desires. And when we set the moral good against our desires and our aesthetic good, uh, we have this bondage of the will thing going on that Marty was talking about. We will always choose the thing that is evil. We will always selfishly choose the thing that we want, even though we know it isn't what is good. Okay? This also carries with it another important point about the law. Well, I'll get into that when I get to that slide. All right. <clears throat> so, let's go back to this and talk about this list. We have this list, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous. Is anybody in here covetous? I, I know I'm past that. So I'm good. Um, drunkards, I know a number of you were at the beer place last night. Um, revilers, swindlers. Um, and, I, and I have to say, I, I feel bad for you all because how could you not be covetous with me, Jim the Humble, standing in front of you? All right. Now, I want you to notice who he's talking to in this passage. As this is so critical to understanding this. He is talking to genuine believers because he says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And the tense of that isn't, you were washed, but, you know, you get dirty again, and so you have to keep getting washed over and over. He means in a final sense, it is finished. The tense of that verb is you were, in a final way, washed. You were washed once and for all, and it's done. You were sanctified once and for all, and it's done. You were justified once and for all, and it's done. <clears throat> um, so he goes on to say, all... This is absolutely shocking. This is, this is, 
one of the most shocking things in Scripture I've ever seen. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Paul, all things are lawful for you? Even fornicating and idolatry and adultery? Even coveting is lawful for you? How can you have just given us that giant list and then say, all things are lawful for me? How is that even possible? Well, how I've heard that explained, and I had someone get very uh, uh, a long conversation over many days over the uh, through email uh, with a guy, and he even brought in this like reformed like professor guy to try to convince me. And they think that that passage where it says all things are lawful for me belongs in quotes like they do in the ESV. And that it wasn't Paul really saying that. They're saying that Paul was making a joke, but he didn't really mean that at all. But he did mean it because if you read the rest of it, let's go back and look at it. Wait, where is that? Yeah, such were some of you. Oh, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. And then he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. If that's a joke, why does he go on to repeat it and say, but I will not be mastered by anything? He really means all things are lawful for me. Now, how do you explain that? How are we supposed to think about the statement that all things are lawful for me? Does that mean we can just do everything? Well, it kind of does. I hate to be antinomian. But I'm just looking at what the scripture says. He says, all things are lawful for me. How does he say that? We have to look at the context here. All right? Um, first, I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians, uh, the direct context of the book of 1 Corinthians. So look at, let's look at this in uh, 1 Corinthians 1. He says, for indeed, you know, let, me, let me lay a little groundwork here. The Corinthian church was really a problem. The Corinthian church was tremendously carnal. I mean, they had sexual immorality. They had people suing each other in the church. They had people that were consumed with thinking about weird spiritual gifts. There's no churches like that now. (laughs) But he comes to them and says... We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then let's look at this. This is a famous verse, and I hang my hat on this. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So... If you try to interpret 1 Corinthians 6 in a way that's at odds with 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, you're boxing the air. There's no way that's going to work. In fact, you're going to come up with utter and complete nonsense with trying to understand what he means by saying, all things are lawful for me, after giving this giant list of horrendous sin. Okay? 
So how are we supposed to understand that? Um, Here's the thing. If Jesus Christ has loved me and has died for my sins, God has already demonstrated his wrath against my sin. And how would I ever have the courage to come to the throne of God and say, I know that your beloved son died for my sins, but I don't think it worked. I don't think that was enough. I think that I kind of need to pay. I think that you need to take into account that I repented. You know? It's kind of like somebody that was caught that was murdered someone, and they come into the courtroom, and they say, well, I know that I did it, but I repented. I'm not going to murder anymore. No more murdering for me. And everybody in the courtroom is going to go, we don't care what you're going to do in the future. You're already guilty. There's nothing you can do about that. We're not going to let that go. Are you crazy or something? Well, you know what? When we think we can come to the throne of God and say, my repentance has some kind of bearing on God's opinion of me, it is repugnant. It is repellent to think that I, squirming in my sin, can come before God and say, I repented, so you should take heed of me. The only thing that God is going to do in justice is say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because we're not putting Jesus Christ, his beloved son, at the forefront. And we're saying that the blood that he shed for us really wasn't needful. But it was needful. And it was needful because it worked. Now, if it worked... If Jesus died for our sins, and it worked, and the wrath of God is satisfied concerning justice with our sins, what is there left? Is there any threat of the law left hanging over our heads? This is happy news, people. The answer is no. No. Because in your own conscience, think about this. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In your own conscience, just look at your own conscience right now. In your own conscience, would you dare say that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross wasn't enough to save you? Would you dare think that? We all know that that is the holiest of the holy of the holiest of the most holy things, of the most beautiful and greatest things that there are. None of us would be willing to say so. We we are always going to say, yes, Jesus died for me, and it was enough. Justice was satisfied because the perfect Lamb of God offered his own blood in my place. And I am happy to say, I believe it worked. It worked. 
So there is no law that has a threat over me. The threat's already been executed. That's the belief. As Christians, that's the core thing we actually believe. The threat of the law, the threat of my guilt, the, the, the cloud that's hanging over me has been removed because Jesus Christ died for my sins and it actually worked. And I'm free. I am not living under a cloud of guilt anymore. And I don't know all the machinations of how the simul works over me, which I think you were saying, too. I have no idea if the things I do are, are righteous or sinful. I don't care anymore. I am not condemned. It doesn't matter. God doesn't care anymore. He died for our sins, and it worked. This is a beautiful thing. So no wonder Paul is determined to know, not just to say, not just to teach, but to know nothing among the carnal Corinthians than Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, really, I think a lot of us would think if someone was this kind of rescue pastor and they're coming into this super carnal church, the last thing they would want to do is to get all theological and start talking about the blood of Christ and the propitiation. And yet, that is the only answer that we have for that carnality of the church. There's no other answer. All right, so Paul was determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that is the context to understand 1 Corinthians 6. All right? Um, and going back to Genesis 3, here's the other thing to understand. The nature of what's wrong with us is we have a split idea of the good. We have the moral good and the aesthetic good. And the aesthetic good's always going to win. But what the gospel says is the sting of the moral good, of the moral law, has been removed. The only thing left to us is to make an aesthetic choice. You understand that? The only thing left to us is to do things uncoerced by the threat of the law. That's the only thing we have left. And that is a very good thing because the law doesn't really promote virtue. The law only appeals to a secondary motivation that says you should avoid punishment by doing these things. So we're not motivated by the intrinsic beauty of actual virtue if we're under the law. We're motivated by avoidance. But if we are under grace, we are not under the coercion or threat of the law because Jesus already took the threat out of play. So we're only under the, the, the appeal of the aesthetic nature of the virtue. It, it, it's kind of like this. I, 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 I look at it like this. Um, let's say that I inherited a billion dollars, okay? It's awesome. Or I won the lottery, and it's just awesome. And so I'm like, God, I'm going to 
I'm going to go to Walmart and I'm going to buy all the stuff I want at Walmart. You know? It's like, what are you going to go to Walmart? You're, you, you're free. But here's the nature of these imperatives. It's not a moral appeal. You shouldn't go to Walmart. The, the real appeal is I have this other friend that's been super rich forever, and they come and say, listen, you don't want to go to Walmart. What you want to do is hire your own personal chef and then have them go around to all the local farms and stuff and get all this low and then cook for you because you're, you're ultimately wealthy and you don't have to bother with Walmart anymore. There's an aesthetic appeal. And that's the exact thing that happens in 1 Corinthians 6. All right, we're going to get into that. <clears throat> and I want you to notice, too, and, and this is just to hammer home this point. It doesn't say in 1 Corinthians 6, you should try to be washed. You should try to be sanctified. You should work on being justified. Because that puts the onus on you. It's a passive thing. It says, you were washed. You know, my boss has this crazy dog that he brings to work every day. I mean, it is the most hyper thing you've ever seen in your life. And he brings it into work every day. And, I mean, it will not let you alone. It wants to play with the thing and tug on things and chew on your shoes. I mean, it is, like, impossible to even concentrate. But God bless him, and we've grown to love this crazy dog. Well, he came in and he told the story that his dog had gotten into all this mud and she was just absolutely filthy. And he said, you can only imagine what that was like because I had to give her a bath, you know. And um, she was fighting and it was a mess and there's water everywhere and it's splashing. And, you know, he did give her the bath, but I guarantee it was totally against her will. She did not want to get washed, but she did get washed. And then to this day, she still doesn't want to go anywhere near that bathroom, right? But you know what? She did get washed. And you know what? That's you and me. We're that dog. I don't even want to get washed. I don't even know what sanctified means. I don't really, in my flesh, I don't care about being justified as long as I'm getting what's mine. If somebody else is transgressing, I'm all worried about justice. But in terms of me, I don't care. Right? Right? But these are the things which God has established for us. And it doesn't matter if you understand it or if you want it or if it's up to you. It doesn't say you should try to work on being sanctified. It says you were sanctified. God did it. Now, here's the killer part of this. Oh, you know what? I was going to uh, point out Psalm 51 in this regard. Listen to, this, listen to these verses. Um, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David knows that he can't clean himself. 
He can't reach back that far to all those, you know, he can't, you can't do it. It's like trying to think about this. You ever hear the story of the guy who did surgery on himself to remove his own appendix? Can you even imagine? That is not natural. You know, I mean, no way, right? How about this, trying to cut your own hair? Forget about it. How about give yourself your own back, back rub? How does that go? You know, we got one of those things, you're trying to dig around, it's like, it's not the same as someone actually doing it. You know, you can't clean yourself. It's not in your power. It's really not in your power. It, 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 it's like this. If you said, if someone said, all right, you're on death row, you know, and there's the idea that, like, well, someone should step in in my place and, 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 and be executed so I don't have to be. So I'm going to step in for myself. It's like nonsense. I cannot redeem myself. I can't make atonement for myself because I'm the guilty party. You understand that? I cannot clean myself. And so it's really important that we say it is passive because that's the only shot you have at this. You cannot do something to redeem yourself. You cannot do something to, to sanctify yourself. You certainly cannot do anything to justify yourself. It has to be a passive thing that someone that isn't you does for you. Now, no one except Jesus can do it because everybody else is guilty, right? Everyone around you is guilty. Um, it would be like the same guy on death row, and somebody said, hey, I'll go, I'll go be executed in his place. And then they're like, you can't go be executed in his place because you're on death row too, right? I mean, none of us are worthy. The only one that was possible was Jesus because he's the only one that's not guilty. So he's the only one possible to take our place for our punishment. <clears throat> All right. Um, so here's the thing about 1 Corinthians 6. If you move on, I don't know how this gets so out of order here. Where's the rest of that? I'll read it in here. Like you have printed this out. Um, sorry. I am not as organized as all the other speakers, and I apologize for that in advance. Where is that? Well, I wanted to look at the part that, you know, I know I printed that on here, and I'm, now I'm embarrassed because I can't find it. Did I miss a page? Huh. Well, anyone have a Bible? Because I need to read that. You got it? Okay. First Corinthians 6. Sorry about that. I really need that. I know, right? It's horrible. No. Okay. 1 
Okay, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and blah, blah, blah. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that the one who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Okay, hold on just a minute. He is talking to people that he just said have been washed, have been sanctified, have been justified, and that they are not the people in that big, giant, ugly list. And yet he has to go on and warn them and say, and you need to stop having sex with prostitutes. It's like, are you kidding me? The washed people are having sex with prostitutes? Is that crazy or something? Maybe Paul had lost his mind. How can you say a washed person is having sex with prostitutes? Does this mean that I'm advocating that it is okay to have sex with prostitutes? Is that what Paul is saying? No, of course not. But what he is saying is that even like tremendously gross sin, just horrendous sin that I would have kicked them out of the church a hundred times over for. They are considered to be true believers by Paul. They are considered to be washed and cleansed and set of all things. They are considered to be sanctified. I mean, that really pulls the rug out from under the, the general reformed uh, uh, idea of what sanctification means, doesn't it? Okay, so, you know, I guess maybe you don't buy what I'm saying here, but let me, let me read this again. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. The food is for the stomach. God will destroy both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. He's definitely saying that for aesthetic reasons, he's making an aesthetic appeal because there is no threat. Even for heinous, gross, detestable, disgusting, really, really bad sin, there is no threat to your assurance in Christ that the blood of Jesus worked on your behalf. Now, this is important to know because a lot of us struggle with assurance for every little thing that happens. Every time that we don't, like, help at a soup kitchen or share the gospel with somebody at the, 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 the grocery store checkout stand, we think maybe we're not a real Christian. Well, here are people who are having sex with prostitutes, and they think, Paul thinks that they're real believers and that they've been sanctified. So you know what that tells me? 
the blood of Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul, actually works. It works. It has secured your salvation. No matter what. Does that mean that we're advocating for sin? Absolutely not. May it never be. Of course not. That's ridiculous. What it really does is that in the places where you struggle or you have ongoing sin issues or whatever thing that you're squirming around in, whatever form that takes with you, God is with you in that. God is there for you. You can count on the kindness of God to lead you to repentance. It is not that your repentance leads you to the kindness of God. It could never work that way. It is the kindness of God despite and prior to your repentance. You understand that? The kindness of God is for you from before the foundation of the world. And when Jesus died for your sins, absolutely 100% of all of your sins were all in the future. And he still said, it is finished. Amen? All right? So what are we to say? Do not be deceived. What is the difference here? Here is the way I think this actually works. Here, here, here is the objection. Here's where this verse comes into play. I know so-and-so. I can think of people directly like this that I am tempted to say this about. So-and-so is taking drugs and sleeping around and partying and never goes to church and they claim to be a Christian and I just know it's not none of it's true. It's not true. They're not really a Christian. How could they be a Christian when they've got this rank sin in their life? I'm not saying it's not rank sin. I think it is rank sin. I think they're destroying themselves. But you know what I think? I think in every case where that is true, I don't think they've ever even heard the gospel. All they've ever heard is judgment. All they think is that God is unkind and ready to drop the hammer on them. And they are fleeing the lovely kindness that God has for them to find solace in anything else. Because that's the way we're wired. We have to find something that gratifies our desire. So we'll choose any kind of idol. And if we don't preach the actual gospel that Jesus Christ has loved us and has died for our sins and that we are forever genuinely loved to the end of the universe and beyond, we're going to find solace somewhere else. And that's where people live. And that's why people do that. And that is what drives our sin. And that is the real question. What is your identity? You know? Let me read this again. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor the homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. The question is, what are we? What is our identity? What kind of people are we? I'll tell you what we are. We are the people who have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. That is the dividing line. That is the genuine dividing line. It isn't how well you've repented from sin, because I can tell you right now for every single one of us in here, our repentance from sin sucks. It's it's not working, you know? And the, the real delineating thing is our identity is no longer in what we do. Our identity is that God has loved us dearly in Christ. He has said that even if you are so evil, if you are so bad, beyond that list, if you are so bad that you would kill the only begotten Son of God, the lovely Jesus Christ, who went about doing good and healing people and speaking the truth, if you are so evil that you would kill him, he would still love you. And he would raise from the dead. And he would find you hiding away in some bunker somewhere, locked away with your tail tucked between your legs. And he wouldn't just say, I forgive you. He would say, you're still my guy. You're still my girl. You're still on my team. Feed my sheep. You're still mine. I still love you. No matter what. That's the message of the gospel. And that is the message. That is why our identity is so crucial to that, that we believe the love which God has for us. It is not about our performance. It isn't about what we do. It isn't about how well we repent. Everything is based on our faith. You know what it says in 1 John 5? This is the victory which overcomes the world, our faith. Isn't that lovely? And so that brings me to the final thing. You know what Paul's final appeal is in 1 Corinthians 6? Christ is our husband. He has loved us with an extreme sacrifice, with a a finality of love that can never be undone. He has gone to extreme sacrifice to express an extraordinary love for his beautiful church. It's like if some guy was married to this beautiful supermodel kind of girl who just loved him, and he went and cheated on her with some kind of toothless, meth addict prostitute. And she still loved him. And the answer is, why would you do that? But maybe he does. God has said through the cross, he's so lost in love for us, that he would do anything 
anything for the love of us. He's not in it to try to trick you into being more moral. He is trying to win your love. But it doesn't matter if you love him back. And this is love. Not that we love God because we don't. But that God loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sin. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that wonderful? That is who we are in Christ. That is the important thing. That is our escape from all of these things, is that we actually believe the love that God has for us. I like that Marnie said that there's only one sermon. I have one sermon. My one sermon is that we have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. In fact, I have coffee with Dax almost every week, and that's all we ever talk about. You think it would get old, right, Dax? And, and you know what? It never gets old. Never gets old. So that's the end of my message. I think I'm, am I over or short? Um, all right. I don't know what I'm going to say, but any questions? Comments? Yes. Yes. No, I think that that's the only thing left to us. And I think that the only genuine, what I was trying to say was, the only genuine virtue is the virtue which isn't performed because it's threatened 